Hello and welcome to this special Career in Ruins episode brought to you by the lovely people at Citizen or the Coastal Intertidal Zone Archaeological Network for short. The Citizen team bring together communities and monitor at-risk sites on the coasts of England and have asked us to help produce a podcast as part of the Council for British Archaeology Festival of Archaeology Digital Week which is running between the 11th and the 19th of July. The theme of this week is climate change and there has been some amazing online content produced across the country to help people engage with and learn about archaeology during this slightly less open and accessible period due to COVID-19. And today we're really excited to be joined by an incredible panel that features a range of different people from different professional backgrounds, including Neil Redfern, the Director of the Council for British Archaeology, Dr Hannah Fluck, Head of Environmental Strategy at Historic England, Dr Rachel Bino, a lecturer in archaeology at the University of Southampton and a specialist in submerged Pleistocene landscapes, and Caroline Barry-Smith, the Citizen Project Manager. So Hannah, could you kick us off by giving a, a brief outline of climate change and its, its impact within archaeology? Yes, yeah, so I think everyone knows that the climate crisis means that things are changing. Um, things are changing quite rapidly. In fact, and, and Rachel can probably talk about this a little bit in a moment, but, but things are changing more rapidly than any other human beings have experienced. Um, but for us in the UK, the, the impacts of climate change are hotter, drier summers and warmer, wetter winters. Uh, with rising sea levels, but also increased intensity in the rainfall that we experience. So I think a few of us will have noticed recently that when it rains, it can get really very wet very quickly. And that is a pattern that's that's set to continue quite dramatically. Um, also increased intensity of, of heat and, and hot periods and also dry periods. So we will experience temperatures far hotter than the hottest days at the moment, and those will last for far longer. So that affects a lot of the, the things that, that are, will affect archaeology will be related to the way in which that um, those, those changes act as um, risk multipliers. They enhance those processes that, of, of decay and erosion um, that already happen. We will also see changes in, in the ways um, at species of plants and animals that we have, the growing season for plants um, with, with much longer growing seasons, which could be problematic for some of our archaeological sites, increased desiccation. Another thing that happens with sea level rise is that you get increased um, salinity in, in groundwater in coastal zones. And I don't think we currently understand the impact that that might have on buried archaeology in those areas. Um, but also, it's it, I think probably the, one of the, the biggest risks for a lot of the historic environment is human responses to climate change as well. So we will see big changes in the way that our, our land is used um, as we respond to that. We're already hearing talk of quite extensive tree planting. Um, also, peatland restoration, which is really critical for trying to mitigate the impacts of climate change. So that's removing carbon and reducing carbon um, that, that causes climate change. That's going to have um, an impact. Um, and perhaps as we move to different sorts of crops, um, because they either because they grow better or because we're looking at biomass fuels um, as we as we move away from from fossil fuels, um, that is likely to have a bit have a big impact as well. Um, but there are also opportunities. Uh, and again, I think Citizen are very well placed to see the, the sorts of opportunities for discovery that we have 
as places um, are eroded, around, particularly around the coast. Um, we've also seen some extraordinary discoveries from crop marks um, in some of the recent very hot and dry summers that we have. Um, and these are things that otherwise we, we wouldn't know about. So there, there are there are benefits. The other the other benefit is that as as the seasons get longer, where people might want to be out and about and 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 looking at um, archaeological sites and engaging with it, I think we may see greater greater um, involvement and engagement opportunities for those sites that are open to the public. That's great. Thank you, Hannah. Um, Neil, what, what do you see is the role of, for the Council of British Archaeology when it comes to thinking about climate change in archaeology? To me, I think our role is really about helping people understand the connection between what archaeological endeavour and activities can do and how we understand the impacts of climate change. There isn't a place in these islands that hasn't been affected or influenced by changes in the environment um, at all. You know, it's all around us. Um, I'll give you an example. I was doing a a bit of filming um, for the launch of the festival yesterday in the centre of York, and I purposely stood in front of the brass plaque that lists all the floods that ever happened, major floods that happened in York, And, and they go back 500 years you know, that's known records. And so uh, how we deal with them is is part of our world today. And archaeology has a real um, relevance to that because we can show how people have tried to adapt to changing environments in the past, that changing environments are nothing new. I think the important thing is what what Hannah said. There are two differences uh, to my mind that are so pertinent now. That's the the, the severity of, of the, the changes we're seeing now, that, that rapidness, that intensity of those changes. I don't think we've been there before. And then I think the other one is, is human responses to the threat of climate change. They're the really challenging aspects we've got to deal with. It's an entirely human-led phenomenon i.e we think about climate change we're concerned about climate change archaeology is a a human discipline as a a discipline about people and how they interact with places is really really important in terms of what we might do and think about this subject that's that's really really interesting and i wonder rachel could you maybe pick up a little bit on the the unique perspective that archaeology gives in terms of um, understanding climate change and the, the longevity and pace of change that, that archaeology can offer? Yeah, of course. Um, so like you said at the beginning, um, I focus on the, the Pleistocene. So this is a, an incredibly long uh, view of what's been happening. And we know that, um, so, so for example, Northwest Europe or Britain has its earliest occupation going back to nearly a million years on current evidence. And through that time, we've seen massive changes to climate on a, on a kind of cyclical basis. So we've had huge glaciations and we've had interglacials. And this has changed our our sea levels and our landscapes and the environments that we've had through that time. And while people have been in those landscapes, what we've always seen is an incredible ability to 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 live within those changing environments to adapt and uh, resilience to that change um and so i think it gives us this idea that yes things have changed dramatically in the past but we have always managed to to adapt and live through it but the important thing is also that although this past record and of course that the further we come uh, towards now, I suppose, we get a, a higher resolution picture of those changes. And we know that people have lived through probably 
very rapid changes on, on generational timescales sometimes. And they've, they've adapted and they've changed and they've, they've, they've lived through that. Um, but what that also tells us is that, again, again, like has just been pointed out, um, the changes that we are seeing now are unprecedented. So yes, we've seen this in the past, and yes, these are natural changes, but what we've got going on at the moment is, is incredible in terms of its rate of change, in terms of the fact that this is something unprecedented and, and is humanly driven. Um, and I think that kind of long timescale and the differences that we see are really important for highlighting those issues. That's brilliant. I guess that's a really nice insight into how the past can inform our understanding and insight. But Caroline, um, given some of the risks that have been identified through the conversation so far to archaeology, um, through climate change, through sea level rise, for example, what role do you see organisations such as Citizen playing in the debate and also the discussion? For Citizen, we really deal with the here and now. So especially in the Solon, every six hours, our site can change. And um, so with that, we can see climate change and coastal changes literally every day, every week. And so we run um, a programme of free community-based training and events in currently six regional programmes um, to help with, with a, a group of trusty volunteers and, and newbies to archaeology who are becoming volunteers um, to help assess and look and watch this, this change happening. Um, but actually getting out to the public, it's not as easy as we all think. So a lot of people think, oh, education outreach, you know, we'll, we'll go to an event, we'll have a stall, we'll have a handling collection. It's actually, it's almost an old way of doing education outreach and getting this out to the public. And I think things like the, the COVID crisis has never um, demonstrated so clearly how we are not key workers. None of us here are not, we were all sent home, we either got furloughed or we worked from home, but we weren't the basis of life. We didn't um, food, feed, shelter or, or save lives. And for us to really have a, a seat in the climate change crisis debate on any scale, I think rather than um, looking at archaeology and what we do and, and disseminating it uh, for other people's self-fulfillment or a, a psychological need, what we need to demonstrate is the physiological need um, to understand what we do and understand what we research um, in order for the general public to see, oh, actually, this does affect my basics of life, food, shelter, warmth, and just living. And if I, so um, the best way to demonstrate this is actually with uh, Manslow's hierarchy of needs from 1943, which is like a tr most people see it as a, as a demonstration at a triangle. And the bottom of the triangle, um, you have the basic needs, the physiological needs of food, shelter, warmth, and to be able to live. After that, the psychological needs of friendship and employment and health and love and so on. And then after that, the self-fulfillment needs, um, making the most of yourself. And Manslow said, you know, that humans are, are motivated to achieve things in a certain order. And sometimes archaeology um, and all the stuff we do and all the publications we put out and for my team, the blogs they put out, the Graylit and then going out to events and so on, it really does only achieve that top bit of self-fulfillment for an audience. They like it. It's nice. Or maybe we talk to other archaeologists. So we're doing archaeology for archaeologists, but we need to get further down the scale. And certainly with the volunteering, it, it helps with a, a psychological need, a, a self-esteem, a needing of a, a group and a friendship and a love. But I think for us to really have and make a difference on a much larger scale to the climate 
crisis debate is to be able to say, look, because we are doing this work, this is going to help you with um, deciding about your shelter, your house in the future. So, for example, you know, there's plenty of castles and churches that are falling off of cliffs into the sea and people go oh oh, why should the council be spending money saving this when we should be having a new community center in town but actually this is a great place to demonstrate just how quickly a coastline is 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 disappearing maybe a a meter a year or something like that and you can say look this is something that's is really clear really you can really demonstrate a change And if you can demonstrate that, you can also say, well, now we can predict the future. And your village is actually only 50 metres behind this cliff, this castle that's falling down the cliff. And because we know and we can see this change, this is a threat to a shelter, a former shelter. This will be the threat to your shelter in 50 years time. So if if we can really uh, drill down to people's basic needs, then we truly have a place at a climate change crisis table for discussion. Um, There's a recent Congress, a US Congress report from um, the Climate Change Crisis Committee. And with their report, it goes up on the website. And if you look on the front page of their website, it actually, it demonstrates all the, all the, the climate change crisis issues that they are paying attention to. And each one is advertised as a basic need. So because of the climate change crisis, this will affect your employment and getting jobs. Or because of something else, this will affect your food. Um, it will affect um, your your life in some sort of way and your basic needs. And they've set this out to demonstrate that it's your basic needs uh, for life and living that will be affected. So we must address the climate change crisis. And I think archaeology can do that and we do do that in certain amounts and I, I found it like in the ICOMOS documents I was looking at this morning um, that they, they do address it but I think we need to, need to make it more stark and more obvious and that way we can really embed this with the general public and with a wider audience. It's really really in- intriguing to see the the potential power of, of archaeology within this debate and also as you say making it relevant beyond our discipline and beyond ourselves and I wonder if it's it's maybe worth um, going going around the virtual room a bit and thinking about what what other mechanisms what other tools do we as archaeologists have to make our role in this debate as powerful as it can possibly be. I spend most of my time talking to people about why, as heritage professionals, they have exactly the skills that the climate crisis needs. And they usually start off quite cynical because most people say, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about climate change. I don't know enough um, to really engage with it. And they're quite nervous. But the important thing is that this is a, an anthropogenic problem. And... Um, And to solve anthropogenic problems, you need to understand people. And as Neil said, the the experience and the knowledge and the way of viewing the world that we as archaeologists have is entirely about people in places through time, through periods of time that other people quite simply can't comprehend often. I mean, particularly Rachel, um, with the, the Pleistocene perspective, there are no other disciplines. I think geologists might argue with us on this one, but there are no other disciplines that have people and places over those lengths of time. Um, and the climate, her- I'm involved in, a, in an international group of um a network of networks called the, the Climate Heritage Network. And our purpose has been to to try and promote the importance of cultural heritage and the arts in climate change conversation. 
And um, one of the things that I've been really inspired through through working with colleagues on that network, we have a catchphrase, by the way, the catchphrase is an anthropogenic problem needs human solutions. Um, and I, I just use that all the time. I think it's so true. But, but one of the things I've learned is the real power of how we can shape those conversations to bring it back to people. Because let's face it, climate science has not got as close to active, being active in implementing solutions. We know what the solutions are. And they're not actually that complicated on the face of it. We've just got to stop pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Um, really simple. I mean, with this COVID doesn't have a solution that simple at the moment. Um, <laughs> but, but we're not doing it. Why are we not doing it? Well, humans do not act logically. We are not logical beings. And archaeologists and anthropologists and all of those people who study people will know that. Um, and that's really important because if you approach that the challenge of that solution as something that's logical and just needs more and more evidence, then we're not going to get anywhere. Um, I did a webinar yesterday and I did an experiment on my unsuspecting audience. It was a little bit mean of me, but I gave a webinar about climate change with no facts and figures in it. Or maybe there was one that snuck in, but it was almost entirely um, talking in very general terms about the power that archaeologists and historic buildings people and historic landscape people can bring to climate change. And at the beginning, I asked people how confident they were. Um, most of the audience, the 90% of the audience were were um, heritage people. I think most of them working in local government, how, how confident they were about engaging climate with climate change. Um, and I think about a third, just under a third of them said, said that they felt confident. And at the end, I asked the same question. Um, and thankfully, um, more of them said, so just over two thirds of them at the end said that they then felt confident. Um, but in that presentation, at no point had I given them information that they didn't already have. There wasn't there wasn't a new um, suddenly you now are an expert in climate change having listened to me. Um, it, it was entirely um, about giving them the confidence as to why their skills as historic environment people were relevant. And it's it's to do with I think as already has been discussed. It's that long view, that's unique. The long view with people. So I, I was trying to find a way to say the long people view. It sounds a bit daft, but I'll, I'll come up with a better phrase. Um, but also um, the other thing I think um, Kaz was saying is um, my colleague at the National Trust, Keith Jones, talks about this as the the canaries in the mine. That yeah. idea of monitoring. Um, of, of monitoring that change, of having these these checkers against change. And that's incredibly powerful. And then that hope, the, the fact that the human species is adaptive. We have always adapted. Um, and I think we, we we definitely need some hope at the moment. So I think there's there's an awful lot that, that can be brought to bear from, from archaeology on that. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, uh, to add on to that, um, I think archaeology and climate change, we have to find a, a language that can resonate with a large section of the population and um, that can, that really, really doesn't make it feel intimidating. I think even if with professional groups or individuals that, that are within our own sphere, they're like, oh, mm, they're finding it difficult to approach this subject and put up a clear, concise argument for um, for, for for saving or looking after or list or whatever they want to do, but actually putting that argument with climate change, they don't have the language and the confidence to go. Actually, yes, we can do it. I think one of the biggest problems is my little bugbear actually is that when this climate change crisis first came about, you know, we're talking. 
20, 30 years ago, they stuck an image of a polar bear on every bit of advertising, save the polar bears. It's all about looking after the poor polar bears. Well, none of us are ever going to see a polar bear. And actually, it really is good to get this down to a local level. Climate change isn't about polar bears. And you can't actually talk about, say, to an Indian population, um, what is climate change about? And if they say, oh, it's about saving polar bears, it's the wrong message. It's actually getting down to the local level and having something that resonates with them that's local and interesting and directly speaks to them. And with all us as climate change and heritage and art specialists, we have to mobilise and find a meaningful way of getting our message across to local populations rather than the big picture in a big climate change debate because I think everybody doing their small bits actually creates the big debate and creates the bigger solution. Well, what's been said there from Kaz and from Hannah, um, I kind of, I really want to, uh, to, to draw a lot from, from everything that Hannah's saying <laughs> because I think that this one of the reasons we're so good as archaeologists is because we, we have that engagement with communities on those local scales and um, you know, we, we do tend to work at sites within landscapes within regions and we get to know people on the ground and people have that real engagement with archaeology so um if we can kind of harness that confidence about talking about some of those changes that we see in the archaeological record through those periods then we can use those connections that we have with the wider public in those local areas to bring those kind of very local questions back to those people to make it really relevant so i think in terms of where archaeology is important that's something that we as archaeologists can actually do to bring it down to that um the base of the triangle that kaz was talking about earlier the importance there um that's fascinating and it's something I've, I've thought about quite a bit in the past before that we 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 as human beings have this this ongoing wider climate change debate but it's a very it's a very macro narrative in a sense, but people experience the things on the ground, they experience weather, they experience the daily events, the, the things that affect their day-to-day -day lives. And I, I wonder if there's a way of highlighting the impacts, the human impacts of some of those past events of climate change before it became a, an anthropogenic phenomenon that could give insight into the way we're experiencing the world today and the way we're experiencing climate change today. I think with a long view, with that kind of Pleistocene view, even if you come back through to what, 10,000 or so years ago, we, we, can, we can start to look at the way people are dealing with these changes, right? So when we see these sea level rises, how are people responding? How do we see um, perhaps where they're occupying, the kinds of landscapes they're using, the kind of environments they're using? And we can look at that evidence to see, you know, how people have responded to this in the past. And I think that's really important. But I also think that there are other parts of archaeology, and I think maybe Neil can talk about this, that, that might be even better placed. Because I think, although we have a lot to offer through the Pleistocene to, to demonstrate those changes, um, there are obvious differences, right? So population densities are completely different. The landscape was completely different. Um, so, you know, pe people could move much more easily. People weren't tied into cities. They weren't tied into the same kind of um, life that we are tied into today. Um, but when you come more towards the now, so when we are living in these urban centres and we're living with much higher population densities, and this is something that uh, is not my area of research, so forgive me if I say really stupid things, but we can there see very, very real changes, see the way that people are dealing with these. So we can look... For example, at um, 
uh, where we've had harbours and ports in the past um, uh, that have seen increased storminess, seen, seen the impact of the sea, and they've had to move where they situated their cities and their towns. They've had to have quite dramatic changes. And we can see not just through the physical remains of where those towns and those places have moved to, but also kind of the social aspects of that. So through iconography, through the inscriptions and the writings of the way that that impacted people's lives. Um, and I think Neil is someone that deals a lot with the with the historic environment and I was talking to Hannah the other day about this and also listening to her webinar last night and there is so much information in that built historic environment that can tell us in a really tangible way about the ways that that our ancestors and our, you know our quite recent ancestors have dealt with these changes um and I so I think although I don't want to argue against Pleistocene because it's the best part of archaeology and I think it has a, an incredible long view and we can see these changes and we can tie them in but I think actually uh, for that question perhaps that more historic um, approach could have some real impact. Uh, yeah no I'd love to I mean I think there's there's so much so much in this uh, this this whole debate but to me there is one fundamental thing we need to try and do and that's we need to shift our philosophical basis for the whole conversation. So for me, I believe archaeology and heritage has walked down a philosophical cul-de-sac around this idea that we have to preserve things and that we have to protect them. Right? I'm sorry, as an archaeologist, I dig things up and destroy it. I do that in order to gain knowledge and understanding. Right? I can't do it any other way. Yeah. And but we've created this thing that we actually say that actually to lose something's really bad. Oh, no, everything's going to go wrong. Well, actually, we fail to understand the really dynamic and powerful nature of what loss means and what you have to do when you think about that sort of loss. And so for me, I think we need to change our entire approach and subject matter. And actually, archaeology is so well placed to actually lead this discussion and this debate, because 90% of what we study is a process of loss. Think, you know, and going back to what Rachel said, you know, I can take you to, to whole towns that used to be ports that now are landlocked entirely because they've silted up. And yes, entire communities had to move to a different place in order to survive and thrive. And one example I really love to give people this about Actually, when you look at loss differently, you can understand really, really important processes that come out of it. It's actually a lot of us in this country only get the right to vote because of coastal erosion. How can I say that? Well, obviously, if you take the 1832 Great Reform Act, which swept away rotten boroughs, okay, MPs who had safe seats in villages miles off the Suffolk coast that had years and years ago disappeared. Yeah. We had the 1832 Reform Act to get rid of those rotten boroughs, to get rid of those seats. If, if they hadn't fallen into the sea, we'd probably still have them. So it's again, it's this idea when you look at the past and the narratives and the stories that are actually in there, you can find really creative elements to it. But this idea that we've got to preserve it, we've got to protect it, we've got to then write a list and keep it safe. And that, you know, the past is finite and non-renewable. I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. As, as Caroline's finding, we're finding so many new things in our coastal intertidal zone. 
all the time, every six hours. It's a brilliantly dynamic place when you actually start seeing it like that. Yeah. And that's where we can draw people in. And if we help them understand just how dynamic this planet is, those forces that are actually there, that's where we enter the climate debate and why we are so important within that discussion. That is very inspiring there, uh, Neil. I think it, what was the, what people won't see is that we've got our cameras on and everyone just had big, such big smiles on their faces while you were delivering that. And I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. Um, I, I guess that, that that is a tricky conversation to have in that it's accepting loss of sites, tan tangible heritage sites that people appreciate and, and visit and have histories with. Um, but... But if that's a stance that we can accept, um, that also highlights the importance for roles such as Citizen, such as um, the First World War project that the CBA did, which are recording and for prosperity, these archaeological sites in photographic form, in, in survey forms. And I wonder if, if people, um, I'll open it up to the floor, but if, if people have got um, a view on this and perhaps how we go forward on that, Neil. Just one thing this goes back again to my whole conversation it's not loss it might be one type of loss but loss is multiple forms so you might lose physicality of fabric but if you do something interesting you can create different cultural value from that an excavation leads to knowledge citizen and their volunteers leads to gains and experience gains and understanding gains and education okay so you cannot present this as a single total loss subject it isn't. The whole point of heritage is it's a dynamic, human-led conversation, and it's about the creation of cultural value and meaning and understanding. So yes, you might lose some physicality, but if you do it properly, yeah, if you really engage, you create many, many, many other outputs, and that's what I'm really interested in doing. If I can come in there, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I mean, the, the only reason that we know about, and I will go on about Haysborough because it's pretty much, you know, most of my life. Um, the only reason we know about Haysborough is because of this of, of this erosion, you know, and and also the only reason that that most of our research there um, has been so fruitful over the past few years is because of the engagement of local collectors on those beaches who might be dealing with massive changes to their communities who but who are also engaging with the changes to the landscapes around them and collecting this material and talking to us and this is being in, invaluable it's pushing our understanding of it forward and it's all about that understanding and i think we are quite acutely aware these days of the fact that the questions and the values that we place on things, they change, right? So um, they change with physical and social climates. And so what's really important here, I think, um, isn't about saying, build a wall around it, protect it, stop anyone doing anything. But it's about saying that, yes, you know, these things are changing, but we need to be sure that we can record them, you know, keep that knowledge. Excavation is is destruction. Uh, sea level rises and erosions will be, will be, you know, that loss, but we don't have to see it as a loss. So if we can think about innovative ways to, to record the things that are on the coast at the moment that, that won't be there in a few ways, then we can continue to return to that in the future. And technology is moving in those directions where we can record things really rapidly, um, so that we can come back to them. So we don't have to think of this as, as permanent loss, but it's, it's my mind's gone. I've completely lost the train of my thought. But this idea that we can 
see opportunities with this, I suppose, see opportunities and just make sure that we are recording to the best of our ability so that in the future we can come back to these with new questions um, and new values, I suppose. Can I um, come in there? So one of the things that I find really fascinating about a lot of these conversations, particularly when they're overseen by archaeologists, is that we make quite a number of assumptions about other people and the sorts of things that they value. As Neil was saying, um, I think our whole approach to to what we value, how we value that, it's actually, it it needs to be, and if we're going to achieve um, what Kaz was saying of that, that drilling down through that triangle, it has to be a fully engaged process. It isn't about us, actually. Um, it's that moment, it's not all about you. Um, and, and the other thing, that there may not be consensus on on these things. There are different approaches, um, different things that people value, different perspectives. Um, but that's not only true for the the ways in people in which people value and the things that they find important, which are quite often nothing to do with the things that people like Historic England think are the most important. Um, but also even for change itself. So I had some work um, undertaken couple of years ago with a, an anthropology PhD student who came and worked with me for six months, um, Vera de Silva Sinha, um, who usually spends most of her time in the Amazon rainforest um, looking at linguistic anthropology. But she went to the coast, east coast of England and spent some time with communities there who are facing quite significant coastal change. And the questions that I was interested in her exploring were around how did those communities feel about the the, envir- the significant environmental change that was happening and the way in which that was going to affect their, their heritage. Um, and, and what did they what did they think about that? How did they feel about that? What did they, how was that changing their values? What did they value? But the most interesting piece of um, information that came back um, is probably illustrated by one of the, the, the conversations she had with a local lady. I think her family had lived there a while. She was asking her what she um, liked most about, about living in this area. And she says, I've got the audio recording, it's very powerful. And she says over and over again, what I like is that nothing changes. This is a place that has lost 20 metres of its coastline in you know, the last I know, t- at least 10 years, if not a shorter time frame. It's a huge change. Um, and she's saying that nothing changes. She says that what she likes is walking through that landscape and seeing the church towers, that sense of timelessness and connection, that it's always been that way. Now, she's not daft. She knows that the coast has changed. But for her, change is not coastal erosion. Change is not that loss. Change is the brand new housing developments, the um, the kind of out of town shopping centres and all of that sort of thing. That's what she, she, she meant. So I think we have to be very careful that we're not imposing um, some of our ideas of what that change and what that loss is onto, onto others. Um, and that listening and that conversation that you only get when you're working with communities in the way that Citizen and CBA and and indeed Rachel's research in Haysborough has been doing um, is it's it's really really important. Um, and and just as a if, if I could take you take you further afield, um, uh, I, I've spoken about this before on other platforms, but um, so quite a few of my family are based in the Central Pacific. Um, the Republic of Kiribati. Now, the Republic of Kiribati, um, the the capital island, is one meter above sea level at its highest point. Um, they are very, very likely to be the first climate change refugees, 
And um, I've been working with my cousins out there saying, saying, you know, I've got this citizen project. This is what I do in the UK. We could come over and do exactly the same thing around uh, the Republic of Kiribati and recording a lot of the, the built heritage, what you've got there or, or some other bits of culture and so on. And uh, uh, the biggest reaction I got is, but none of that's ours. We don't care. And actually, when you look at the infrastructure there, the majority of it is British colonial buildings. Um, Japanese infrastructure for when they were fighting the Pacific and then the American infrastructure that came in to take away the Japanese in that Pacific War. So um, at all of it, they said, well, it's not ours, so so what? They don't care. What they care about is being able to live and survive and so on. And actually their culture is is very much something that comes with them. It's all, it's it's built out of the, the natural environment. So the what are boyas, uh, s- uh, sleeping houses or, or the, the community houses and so on, uh, the mini abbas, they are actually, they're built, um, they decay and they're rebuilt. So there's there's very little on the ground. So all their culture will go with them. Um, but their, their view and their local community view on an island that's like, I don't know, 500 metres wide and a few miles long round, um, it is very different to our perception. And it's interesting when I take that and I think about that, but I think about it on the local level in the UK and look at the a, t- a tiny little village, what is actually of value to them and what I think is value to them are sometimes two completely different things. So that, that local conversation is, yes, it's so important and um, it can be so different from our perceptions. Um but along with that, just just delivering the, the message that the climate change crisis is not all doom and gloom and it's not all death and destruction. It's um, the, the spirit of the survival of the adaptor is a very empowering message. And as long as we add that to it, then it's it's easier for, for me to, when I speak to the public and say, yeah, yeah, this, this, this thing is going to collapse into the sea and it's going to go, but it's okay. We survive, we move back and we move on. And it's really always important for, for whatever we do in climate change that with the climate change crisis debate that we always, we give it a boost and a yeah and a we can do this and we're all in it together. Um, otherwise, archaeology, we can be the predictors of doom and gloom rather than the, the empowerment of, 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 our, of our population. I think that's a really good st- point to start thinking about bringing this podcast to an end, um, just um, thinking about the length of time and whatnot. But um, regular listeners to the, the podcast will know that we do have a working time machine. And I wondered if we might give each and every one of you a very quick return trip to a particular site or or something that you think might be per- pertinent to this discussion uh, i know I've, I've thrown this on you it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a curveball but um uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna throw this to hannah first you got it doesn't necessarily have to be climate climate change related but oh that's fun um so i i'd go forwards um am i allowed to do that yeah yeah okay i think i'd go forwards and i'd go forwards actually i'd go go to the city of my birth I think I'd like to see what on earth is happening in Portsmouth in about a hundred years time (laughs) because I I have no idea um, what uh, a city that is pretty much yeah it's going to be close to sea level at that point um, on the south coast of England which is our front line with the climate change so the climate that we will be experiencing I'm sat in in southern England at the moment um, we are going to be experiencing climate that's 
the UK has not experienced. There's changes everywhere, but we are, you know, with with the most, there's not moving northwards. Um, how that is playing out in a city, um, because cities I think are facing particular challenges, and and what that relationship with the coast is like. Have we got huge concrete walls that mean? that the very important relationship between people and access to the coast, which I think is something that gets lost when we start protecting things. Sometimes we do that at the expense of that really important relationship. Um, have we, have, is there a relationship with the sea? Are they so hemmed in behind walls that that's gone? Um, or is there, a, is there, are there innovative ways in which people are living within and on and around water or, or has, uh, has it been abandoned? Is it, is it, is it sort of subject to blight and then no one can quite live there anymore? Um, I'm hoping that there's something really exciting and different um, that continues that connection between Portsmouth and the, and the sea. But but yeah, I'd love to see what happens there. That's excellent use of the time machine there, Hannah. Thank you. Neil, what, what about yourself? Okay, I'm going to decline the offer to go in the time machine because I strongly believe I can only deal with the situation in front of me right now. I can't go back in time. I can't go forward in time. Uh, and I know that sort of defeats the purpose of what you're asking. But actually, what I want to do is I want to actually help people have the tools today to deal with this, this scenario that we're, we're actually faced with. OK. And what I mean about that is, is actually how do we help um, people alive today, younger people alive today, have the right aspirations for trying to tackle this scenario going forward. And I think this is really pertinent for archaeology, conservation and heritage. We have a, a process at the moment that I find is very, very fixed. Yeah, it says the past is really important. We mustn't lose it and it mustn't change. Yeah, yet that is entirely at odds with how everything that has happened to get us to this point has has been. The only constant in anything that I can see is change. Change will happen. My daughter thinks differently from me, so she will change the way she behaves yeah, as she moves forward. That is an absolute constant. So you've got to understand that we live in this amazingly dynamic uh, environment and actually place. So how do we provide ourselves the right tools to actually deal with that? And I, and I have one analogy. Um, Hannah knows this one well, um, that I use to try and get this point across. And it's it's actually the Lego movie. OK, and, and the Lego movie is actually a movie about aspiration. And it's about the relationship between a father and a son. OK, and the father has all the Lego. He likes it built towards the instructions. When the son starts playing with it, he glues it all together. And so the son can't change it. He then realizes through the actual movie that actually if the son is going to thrive and be an independent person. He needs to be able to go and change the Lego as he wants to change it. He needs to go and engage with it. And actually, it's all about aspiration. OK, and so then the end of the movie is, is the son, he's the master builder. He changes. He doesn't follow the rules. He designs things to cope with the situation he's facing. Now, again, of all the things we've heard today, what Caroline was talking about, the Pacific Islands, their model is exactly that. They adapt to the situation. And it was only when westernized cultures came in with fixed ideas that they created the problem. Yeah, and that's, that's a really great analogy for coastal defenses. They're a fixed thing. Oh, we're going to, but not necessarily all the time. So I'm really interested in that what we really need to do is equip 
oh, maybe it's equipping the time machine with a way of understanding aspiration and what that actually means. And and that's about letting go. That's about fueling ambition and ideas um, to actually deal with the subject in front of us. That's brilliant, Neil. A um, couple of things to talk to you. One, after post post-podcast if we can just stay on and have a chat about how we modify a time machine that would be awesome and also there's um there's a no sell-on uh, policy with the tickets so uh, you're not you have to give that ticket back to us i'm afraid but, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> rachel um i wonder if you've had any thoughts on this well it was a bit of a curveball and you've had two really um original answers that basically threw your time machine back at you so i'm going to be the full-on like boring <laughs> academic archaeologist yes <laughs> give you an argument. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> sorry, it's going to be really uninformative um, on the climate debate, I think. But so, so for me, I think one of the really interesting things would be not to go back to the period that I mostly work in, um, but actually go back to those more recent times, the last time that we saw this huge um, period of sea level change. So probably at some point I'm thinking about the Mesolithic period when we see... Um, kind of the final breaching of the North Sea when you start to see these landscapes changing. And so we know um, for years, you know, you've had these ideas that this was something that was quite rapid and, and big and destructive. And, and suddenly these people were, were displaced and maybe probably drowned um, and had to move and it was uh, awful. But actually, the more we look at the evidence, it looks like um, it wasn't quite like that. You know, you, you would have seen changes that would have been happening um, in various different ways, uh, and not just destroying things, but I think along the same kind of lines as a lot of our conversations have been actually, uh, you know, changing things. So yes, sea levels are rising, water tables are rising, but actually, what, what did this mean for the environment? Um, but this has opened up different kind of niches, different areas for people to live and to exploit. Um, and so I think that I would like to go back to those kind of periods and just observe and 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 discuss in some way uh, if I've got a time machine and presumably I can also talk to people uh, with these people about about how they viewed that change what what did that mean for them was it this did they view it as this huge um intrusion this destruction of their livelihoods and their landscapes and their their ancestry or or did they see it completely differently you know was this a, a different kind of an opportunity um and just to have that discussion I think with them because although we can understand that you know things were incredibly different back then and we're facing a totally um unprecedented change now um that's still i think something that can can tell us about um some attitudes towards change i suppose that, that's a great answer I, 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 yeah i like that um I, I would say derek and i have signed the temporal accord but as a guest if we just turn around and you're talking to them we, we'll just pretend we we haven't seen it so uh, you should be all right on that okay, side <laughs> <laughs> caroline did you want to finish us off with our trip on the time machine oh with our trip on the time machine actually i think i'm going to go back to rachel's fave uh favorite time okay. <laughs> and uh for me um <laughs> It's, it's getting across to the public these days, my um, survival of the adaptable message, this empowering message that you can do it, it's okay. And if something falls into the sea, so be it. You can still survive. You can still do stuff. What I'd like to do is is go back further in time and prove it and say, I'm going to take a, I want to take a GoPro with me in this time machine, actually, so I don't have to interfere <laughs> with the locals or give them any ideas or anything else, but I can observe and 
learn the tools of the trades of how they have adapted, how they have moved, how they've moved on or, or used the resources around them to say, okay, this, this landscape is changing or the weather is changing, but actually I've got a different idea. We're going to have our house like this, or we're going to have our, our place over there, or we're going to hunt in a different area, or, oh, that's a different kind of animal. I'm going to eat that one instead. Or, or the, whatever those thought processes were and whatever they did to make themselves adapt to change is what the tools I want to bring back to the present day to infuse the audience now and to infuse a larger population now to say, what well, we can do stuff, we can change, and it's not a bad thing. And people have been doing it for thousands of years. Yes, climate change now is more accelerated than it was then, but we can still use the same kind of uh, rule of thumb that... It's not doom and gloom and we can move forward. And this is how they did it. And they didn't have Wi-Fi, which is apparently I've seen on some of these these uh, triangular charts. They're, they're most, one of the most essential things of life these days. <laughs> but it can be done. We can adapt. We can move on. And so that's the message I'd like to, or the evidence I'd like to collect in a time machine and bring it back along with a few fossils. I think that's an incredibly <laughs> strong and positive point to finish on. And thank you so much for that. And actually, um, I must admit, I've, I've, I've enjoyed this debate massively. And just to get a, a, a sense of a positive feeling that the, the whole discussion can be, can be framed in, in a much more proactive, positive and embracing way when it comes to thinking about change um, and moving away from the the idea of, of um, loss and the kind of the, the negative impact. So it's been really brilliant. And I, I just wanted to thank you all really. Thank you for participating. Thank you for joining us and making this a, a, a really interesting podcast. In addition, I'd like to thank our listeners for listening with us for this long. Um, normal service will resume in the next episode, I suspect. Um, but we do recommend you have a really good look at all of the fantastic material delivered by um, the Council of British Archaeology Digital Week. Have a look at all the material. There's lots out there, lots to engage with, lots to enjoy about archaeology. So thank you very much for listening and um, see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>